hello. Hello, my dearest peace lovers, peacemakers, peace builders, whoever loves peace for himself or herself. Welcome to Peace Mindedly. This is season five, and I am super, super excited for our season. Uh, season five is a very special season for us at Peace Mindedly because we are doing something extraordinary and very amazing. That is, because of the success of the show, we decided we would like to take everything to the next level. And that next level is to establish this entity as non-profit organization. And, and we are working on that with a range of talented, amazing women in our community. We are, we are doing this and we are doing it during Ramadan. We have lots of very interesting, amazing program for you. Why Ramadan and why Peace Mindedly? The gist of the show has been to, to showcase the elegance, the pride and diversity inclusion within Muslim community. And since we are doing that and we've been successful, so we are uh, taking everything to the next level. For season five, we have a range of subjects that we are going to cover. If that includes food, includes so many angles, including some of the major concepts in Islamic teachings. One of those very important concepts is the talk of Huris. The whole concept of Huris in Quran and um, just for, for the sake of comparison, Huris in Quran, so much so like, like uh, we are going to have our guests to explain that, but so much so could be liked uh, against the angels in biblical uh, scripture. Our guest is going to, to explain those major differences for us, but perhaps perhaps one of the significant difference that as much as I could understand was these heavenly figures who have been explained by men. I mean, I am just um, just curious and very, very excited to know that why men have always been very excited about the subject and has been explained through the um, men's point of view. And today things are going to be very different. Before I introduce my guest, I very quickly wanted to read a paragraph, not paragraph, but a few lines that has been included in the book and is one of the quotes of many quotes that that our author mentioned in the book to, to prove the point. So this quote is coming from Muhammad Atta, one of the hijackers of American Airline Flight 11 into the North Tower of World Trade Center. The line goes, it will be the day, God willing, inshallah, you spend with the women in paradise, speaking of huris. Smile in the face of hardship, young man, for you are heading toward eternal paradise. This and many quotes are included in the book, The Beauty of the Huri, Heavenly Virgins, Feminine Ideals. The book is by Nirina Rustamji. Nirina Rustamji is Associate Professor and Chair for the History Department at St. John's College, 
of liberal arts and sciences. Naruna specializes in the intellectual and cultural formation of Islamic societies. She teaches in various subjects within the same discipline. Naruna is particularly interested in aesthetics, uh, gender configuration, secularism, and American relationship with Muslim worlds. I am super excited to, to have Nerina in our show. Hello and welcome. Hello, Sara. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on your show today. Absolutely amazing to have you. I am probably too excited that I cannot finish my, my sentences, but I'm just going to start with this one. Um, I, I have a dear friend. He is a scholar. He researches on various topics about Iran, about filmmaking in Iran, so forth and so on. And yesterday he called me out of blue because he really called me about the show and about what, what we cover. And he called me and said, this is a very interesting topic that you are going to talk about. And I am I'm so interested to know so and so and started um, commenting and asking questions. And I was just, you know, Nerina, I was so taken by this kind of his interest on the subject and also learning and knowing that men are so obsessed with women and in this case with Huris. So what is your take on that? Well, I have to tell you, I'm smiling because what you discovered in even introducing the topic is not new. And in one of the books that I talk about in, in my own book is by Fatima Mernesi. Uh, it's called Women in Muslim Paradise. And I'd like to talk about it later on as well. But one of the fascinating things about that book is she starts um, the book by saying, you know, I was sitting um, with a friend who happened to be an imam. And there was a show that was talking about the Huris and he was getting more and more excited, whereas I was getting more and more distressed. And then she goes on in the book to explain what that actual, um, her, her actual take about the Huris is. So I'm smiling because what you describe, I think, is that same kind of tension is that there is this absolute fascination and that fascination can take a very gender turn. And, and then on your part, just like Fatima Mirnisi, you're kind of wondering what, what is going on? What, what is happening in this conversation that I don't understand and I don't necessarily have the same kind of insight about? So, um, yes. So, yes, Nerina, right. Nerina, what is going on? Why men are so obsessed with women figures or women in general? Yeah, it's such a good it's such a good question, and um, you know, and I know today you are going to ask many good questions for which I wish I had the answer, but I can tell you that there is this fascination, um, particularly with the Huris, but also there is a way that feminine models, feminine ideals, become a kind of collective enterprise, and it happens, I think, more with women than it necessarily does with men. And so uh, perhaps, you know, you suggest why is it an obsession? Is it a fascination? Is it that our imagination centers particularly about women and their forms and what we expect about them in ways that it does not necessarily center on men? I mean, there's about so many different, doesn't center about men in the same way. I think there's so many different ways to take this and the one thing I'm, I'm certain about, so I'm not certain the answer, but the one thing I'm certain about is we should ask that question for each time period, for each text, for each group of people in their specific moments. I don't think we can come up with an answer for all time and all people, 
Um, but perhaps when we look at the smaller case studies, we can start to see some um, some similarities. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. The fascination is there. And so is the energy. You know, that fascination can be reverential. That fascination can be repulsive. That fascination can be with humor. I mean, there is so much in the figure of Bahuri that has been offered through time for so many different groups. We had a guest, Selin Ibrahim, author of Women in Quran, in the Quran. And then he, she argues that there is no gender attribution toward Huris. But in our conversation, when I had with you on the phone, I just explained that I'm from Iran. And then during the war, it was just this kind of propaganda on TV, on radio, on, on everywhere about Huris. About, okay, so you young men come over, like uh, Atta was saying in, in his letter, come over and uh, come over, kill for us, uh, for the sake of us. So then uh, eternally you are going to get the reward, and the reward is the Huris. So do, would you think that there is any gender attribution? If there is, so we could understand the uh, obsession. If there is not, uh, they are lying. It's a good question. And I think it's a question that it's very important to keep in mind what's the method by which that question is being asked. Is there a gender attribution when you look at the Quranic verses themselves, where the Huris are mentioned four times explicitly, and then somewhat implicitly, and then there's some other verses that could be interpreted um, as regarding the Huris? there isn't specifically a gender marker for hurin, and it doesn't show up um, in the verse. But there are two things that give me um, pause about that. Uh, the first is that if we look at the methodology of the Quranic commentaries, the commentators really were curious about the Huri. We're equally kind of fascinated and we're not quite sure how to grapple with the meaning of this term Huri'in and refer to the Huri's uh, specifically in terms of their eyes, the kind of intensity of the white and the black of their eyes is being very striking, talked about comparison to cows and gazelles in terms of cow-eyed, large-eyed, um, and so in those early commentaries, the assumption is that the Huris are female from the very beginning. So it gets built within the canonical uh, tradition, or I should say that the, the Quranic tradition more specifically. From my take, I think another useful methodology is looking at the analysis of the Quran, not just in terms of the, the words, but also looking at the context that the verses take a place in. So many of, if not all of the verses of the Quran talk about the Huris within a kind of banquet-like setting of paradise. And they're often paired with these male servers, Wildan and Khilman, who are pouring um, kind of some special type of drink. And so in those verses, um, I think it's important to recognize that you have this kind of pairing the Hora'in and the Wildan Khidman, which are definitely male. And so I think there could be an argument, um, and it's one that I'm compelled by, that the Huris are female because you have that opposition within the context. That is not to say that the argument is um, 
is incorrect. I mean, there is not a gender marker specifically within the verses, but it gets interpreted that way. And I think there are good way reasons why it gets interpreted that way. What's so mm -hmm. fascinating, I think, is that um, you know many many interpreters, especially in the 20th century and the 21st century, think that Huris shouldn't have that gender marker, that they really are indicative of a kind of pure, beautiful companionship that is available to both men and women. And I think that is, you know, that's an interpretation that we should think about and we should study as well. We should study as well. So here's the thing. Most of the uh, exegetes or people who had explained um, Quran or any of the texts were men. And uh, so therefore, there is their point of view, there is their interpretation. So what if we had female scholars like yourself, like Celine, like Barlas, like uh, Mir Husseini? So then, so then if, I mean, just, I know it's a rhetoric question, it's a funny question, but if we had this kind of scholars, uh, uh, would we see Gelmans in the interpretations? Yeah, I, it's a good it's a good question, and I think that the the Hilman and Wildan who show up in the verses, who um, less is about them, I in the commentaries. I mean, I think there are a really rich area of um, a topic to be explored, and it's something that I don't do in the book. I just keep on hinting at it. I keep on hinting that it's important in terms of labor. It's important in terms of companionship. But that's not the book that I wrote. But someone needs to write that book. It's an important book. And whenever that does get written, maybe it will give us more insight into in, into the question itself. Yes, maybe I, maybe it shows that we, women are not obsessed with sex and men are. So <laughs> I want to really intrigue you to, I mean, you're talking about Nicholas uh, Kristof, his opinion piece in New York Times, and then how he explains so forth and so on, and really brought you into this um, journey of writing this beautifully written, meticulously researched book. So tell me what happened. Why you decided that, okay, I, I, I need to write a book to, to respond to Christoph. Yeah, it's such a good question. And Sara, I needed to write this book. This book really came from me. It was not just a choice. It was within me. And I just had, I knew I had to do it. A uh, part of it is in my earlier book, um, I wrote a book called The Garden and the Fire that gave a history of heaven and hell in Islamic material culture and sort of the, the materials that show up in paradise specifically. And in it, the Huris are a, a part of it, but I knew that I did not develop it fully, um, that there was more there. And what particularly troubled me was that, um, that there was a scholarly account that was not as developed as studied, but there was a popular understanding of the Huris as virgins that seemed to be so dominant. Um, I started this research before September 11th, and so I was sort of tracing that, thinking about it, not wanting to really write that work, but thinking it was an important topic. And then September 11th happened, and in in living through that moment, and also in you know reading media. Um, it just seemed the Huris kept on surfacing in such definite ways. Part of it is because of that line that you read that was in the letter that the FBI found and attributed to Muhammad Atta. 
And part of that was, I think there was a way that in American media and in American culture, focusing on the Huris became a way of processing 9-11 and thinking about Islam as a religion and, 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 um, and, and, and thinking about it in very negative ways. And so for me, you know, I needed to write the book because in my mind, it was my September 11th book. That is to say, you know, I wanted to make a contribution to the public discourse. I thought there needed to be a much more careful explanation of what the Huris are and how they're not just virgins, which is a, a translation that I think doesn't do justice to the full range of concepts that get associated with the Huri. I thought this book would take two years. I would sort of dash it off. I'd make my contribution and I'd move on. Um, but as I started studying the Huri, I just realized there was such depth to the traditions, um, not only in the Islamic traditions, but really in the European traditions as well. And um, I just kept on slowing down to try to get to better understanding. Better understanding. What did you really learn uh, after you finished the book that you didn't know before starting? Some of the major concepts you think. I think what I learned that I didn't expect to learn was how significant the Huri was for the developing tradition in Europe. I knew that there was a European fascination with the Huri. I mean, you have a European fascination with this idea of a Muslim woman, whether she's in a harem or she's an odalesque, um, kind of like this entrapped sexual beauty. I knew that, and that fit within, you know, really kind of the lens of Orientalism. But what I didn't expect to find was how developed the Huri was as a model for Christian women um, in, in, in an idealized model, a model of what a woman could be at her full possibility. And that just made me stop and made me realize that when we look at these feminine ideals, um, that they don't get siphoned into Christian and Muslim and early medieval and classical Muslim and contemporary 21st century, that there is something that is so compelling about the figure of women that different groups borrow from different traditions, whether they realize it or not. So that's the kind of major area that I learned. And I think that, you know, to extend that, what I, what I came to um, understand that I didn't fully understand, um, maybe understood conception, wanted to understand, but did not fully understand, is the way that we categorize our studies, the way that we categorize ourselves, that that is Muslim, and this is European, and this is American, is false. And when we look at the kind of concepts that we are all using, they tend to center around women. So can we say that uh, biblical angels are so much like the uh, Islamic Huris? I think that there are differences, and that's why we have to study them. It is we can't one doesn't get equated to the other, um, and and that's where the fun is is then seeing how a group takes this model and makes it their own and brings so much meaning to that model and amplifies it. And then another group takes that sort of model as well. So I think there's 
it's not an iterative process. It's something so creative. And for me, it's something so human. It's why history is so rich and so wonderful because we're studying about people and their imaginations. So in the case of angels, for example, angels are fascinating. And uh, you know, if you go beyond the puti and the idea of the angels as these benevolent beings, angels are even more fascinating. And some of the apocalyptic texts in the Christian tradition Angels can be terrifying, angels can be sexual, angels have a complete capacity to them. So I would say Huris fit within that in the sense that they are intermediate beings. In my mind, an angel is an intermediate being because it can, um, the angel has access to the heavens and has access on earth. Jinn are also intermediate beings because they are in this kind of realm, not just in the stratification, but can exist in different forms in different ways. And Huri's fit within that angel jinn continuum of this, this being that is not necessarily born on earth, imbued with life, but has a kind of cosmic significance. And that cosmic significance is a little bit murky. And that's that murkiness is what makes them so useful. So I, I do think quarries are similar to angels, but I do also sometimes just pause when people want to equate them as angels because they're not just goodness. There's something much more interesting about them. Yeah. So you're saying that idealize the models and then, uh, I mean, we conceptualize some of those, uh, some of those beauties. You know what? I wish that we women had this kind of power that we could also idealize men and also conceptualize men and just think about, okay, who is the most handsome? Who is the most blah, blah? But of course, we are not obsessed with, with men. Uh, stay tuned with me. If you are watching the, uh, the show, yeah, I mean, on YouTube and if you are not watching so go to the YouTube under a gold tone uh, YouTube and there you are gonna see two hoories on my back so these are two paintings on wood uh, my brother sent it to me from Iran and is uh, similar to the kind of hoories that Nirina is talking about you are watching and listening to Peace Mindedly a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers we are on this season five and we dedicated this season to Ramadan. For this uh, season, we are going to talk with lots of cookbook authors and also authors who are taking some of the concepts, concepts important for our community very seriously. For this hour, we are talking to Nerina Rustemji, professor of Islam and Middle Eastern Studies and author of The Beauty of the Huri. Nerina authored another book under the same subject, The Garden and the Fire, Heaven and Hell in Islamic Culture. She is an associate professor at History Department of St. John College of Liberal Arts and Science. Norina's research focuses on studying the collapse between medieval and modern disciplines in the Islamic world. We were talking about Western, how Huri entered into the Western literature, and I, within the book, actually, there are a few amazing paintings of those, uh, if I can find some of those paintings for our viewers. So I want to see um, how uh, you explained, just uh, touched upon, but uh, there is one female travel writer who wrote about the Huris. So this is one of the, if I can show, yes, um, one of the 
um, pictures and we have more. So I want to see um, what happened, why all of a sudden Westerners decided to take Huri's uh, more seriously. You know, so the writer that you were mentioning was Mary Montague, and she mm -hmm. accompanied her husband, who was the ambassador yeah, to the Ottoman Amazing. Empire. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she um, she described the women in harem spaces as celestial beauties. She didn't use the term Huri specifically, but it was very clear that she was drawing on some, some concept of a feminine beauty that was so beautiful that it was not part of this word it was part of this other world. But aside from her, you have also a French writer named De Loire who left from Marseille and traveled through the Ottoman Empire. And he wrote a series of letters. In 1640, one of those letters mentions this term of Huris and he chides Muslim men for not valuing their wives and instead to constantly talk about these beauties in heaven. Um, these Huris that they'll receive at, uh, after their death when they enter paradise. It's from that time period onwards that the term Huri enters the French language and then it also gets introduced into English in the next century. And when you see that term, there is just this proliferation of Huris and specifically naming women or or having women alluding to women as beautiful like a Huri or handsome like a Huri. When I first came on these references, I thought, oh, well, okay, well, this is a kind of Orientalism, right? They're just they're beautiful and it's this, this, um, this place, you know, beauty in, in terms of this place from the Ottoman Empire that's not like us, but is rich and is an empire um, and is to be admired. But the more I looked at these references, I realized that in these traditions, um, particularly in the English literary tradition, the Huri had two capacities. The first capacity was that the Huri symbolized this idea of an enslaved Muslim woman who you know, was beholden to either the Sultan or was beholden to her husband who didn't have freedom. And it, it was a way of indicating that Islam was, um, was a religion that that had oppression built within it, particularly for women, and that continued. Um, that continued through, you know, pretty steadily as an interpretation. But at the same time, there was another kind of use of the huri, and that was that huris had a kind of beauty that allowed them to be both beautiful and pure, both bodily beautiful and pure. And, and this is where the different writers start using the Huri as a Christian ideal or an ideal for Christian women is to sort of suggest that the Huri could, that a Christian women could be just as cosmopolitan, um, have the same kinds of refinements, have the same kinds of manners, but at the same time have a kind of modesty that accorded with Christian faith. And so the Hori becomes a model in that way as well. Nirina, I've read Quran a few times, uh, four or five times. I, I didn't find any description of Huris. It's not even description of the body or beauty or anything. It was just, okay, these Huris, even purity, even the, just these Huris are there. And you, as you explained, mentioned only four times. Um, so I'm wondering where, where the, all of this explanation is coming from. Oh, Sana, that's such a good point. It's such a good point. And it's one that, that I, you know, I would say as well, when you look at those verses, 
um, you have a reference to huris like pearls or like pearls. So you have this idea of a kind of sanctified beauty. That's as much as you get. The term itself is one that I'm still, um, don't think I, that we have a good explanation for. But when you start looking at the Hadith, that is where you have the descriptions of the Huris as a female, as a female who um, you know, has beautiful bodily form, whose um, skin is so fair, who has a, a melodic voice, um, who is uh, kind of draped with adornments of gold and silver brocades, and then that develops over time. So the Hadith starts that, that tradition, and then you have what I call eschatological manuals that take that figure of the Huri and just keep on amplifying those descriptions and then making the Huri kind of the prime female of paradise, um, the prime protagonist, so much so that by the 12th century, you have eschatological manuals where the Huri is like a queen who has, you know, different servants who are serving her. So that all gets developed in the, the Hadith literature and beyond. And, and I think what's useful for us is to be able to trace the imagination, you know, how the imagination of the Huri becomes developed over time. Yes. So I want to know, how does the state-run media, and then in, in Muslim countries, I include Iran, I include Turkey, many of the Middle Eastern countries that I know I've traveled, and as well as the biased U.S. media. You explain it in a passing, but I really want to emphasize on, in your opinion, how do they use the concept of Huri to, to shape and influence public opinion? You said mm -hmm. that it's mostly negative. You know, here's the catch. We are talking about beauty. We are talking about something beautiful. We are talking about something exhilarating, enthralled sort of beauty. And then we are using the beauty and the concept of beauty to uh, label this community terrorist. What is the relationship? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, uh, for... As long as I was working on this project, I had a first line that never made it in the book. And the first line was, it's a strange pairing, beautiful earthly virgins and violent, sorry, beautiful heavenly virgins and violent earthly jihad. How is it that these two can fit together within the same figure? How is it that this one figure can be interpreted in so many different ways? And, and the thing is, it is interpreted that those different ways. So let me take, um, let me separate the media a little bit. For the US media, I think the mention of the Huri becomes a way of signaling um, an older polemic about Islam and Muslims and Muslim men. And this polemic is as old as Latin Christendom. Um, we see it, you know, centuries ago that Islam is sexually driven and that uh, Muslim men. Um, have this kind of capacity of, of sexual oppression. And so I think if we look at those mentions that come, you know, something like as early as Marco Polo that show up in theological texts of Latin Christendom, that's the same kind of argument to use the Huri as a kind of what I call a code, a kind of code that, oh, there's, there's something wrong inherently with Islam, with the religion that allows for sexuality in paradise, that that's not within a kind of Christian format of thinking about why, why paradise is a special place. But beyond that, I think the media also use the Huri as a way of signaling 
that Muslims in their contemporary societies do not have a tradition of scriptural interpretation. And so they take on images or promises of the Huri in very literal ways. And so that is an argument that there needs to be a greater tradition of questioning text. So both of those, they're very different types of critiques, but I think those are the kind of tr critiques that are showing up in US media and also in European um, media as well. And then there's another piece, which is just the jokes. I mean, there's so many hoary jokes um, and some of them are very dark. They're very pornographic. They're, they're, um, they slash, you know, but some of them are kind of funny. So it, I think there's a, there's a range there. On the state-based media, I, I think that, you know, you might be able to speak about that more than, I, but I can, but I can tell you that we do see the use of the Huri as a kind of reward for battle or, or political violence. Um, and that is in earlier text as well on different campaigns along the Byzantine border um, that shows up in a text um, kind of in the medieval period. And then that gets picked up as you had mentioned um, in the 20th century and that Muhammad Atta line is one that is part of that tradition. So I wouldn't say that that tradition is not there. It's just very spotty. It's like the Huri becomes useful for that rhetoric. And so it gets used and then it just sort of falls away. So I'd say that, you know, once again, it's about the opportunity that the authority is going to use for that rhetorical motivation. Rhetorical motivation, exactly. So as you were speaking, I was thinking, okay, so it doesn't matter we are talking about art or beauty or women or erotic women, sexy women, beautiful women, whatever women, if we are going to phrase them and and um, shape them in a extraordinarily negative platform or orientation so it doesn't matter and then the other thing is because western i mean western enlightenment and western media is the teller i mean they are the storyteller so they shape the story the, the way that they want so therefore we have uh, this kind of although we are talking about beauty and we're talking about a beautiful concept as has 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 shaped and um, demonstrated as a terrorist and negative um, ideas. I I would like to. Do you have next project? I do. What is I'm it? Still working on it. Uh -huh. I, I'm still working on it, but I I'm interested in. Um, I want to go back to sort of my medieval background and I'm, I want to do a project that doesn't necessarily involve religion, but I think I'll come, you know, it's like everything, everything put, comes back to it. Um, but I'm, I'm really interested right now in traditions of um, perfumery and in plants and different types of extracts of chemistry. So the process of distilling roses is actually from the, from Iran. Um, yes. and the Iranian plateau. And so I'm really interested in that kind of more that garden landscape architecture, but also in commercial trade and thinking about kind of development of beauty of aesthetics, but in a terrestrial form. So I have, you know, with 
the garden and the fire and the beauty of the Huri, I've been sort of hovering in the heavens for so long. I'm ready to land on earth, <laughs> get my hands in the dirt a little bit. So if you're going to talk about um, extracts and the, the chemical, you're still somehow in, in sort of a perfumic, for lack of a better term, or a good smell, beautiful places. I really recommend if you could go to Kashan. You're going to enjoy, I enjoy of how they are putting all of those rose petals inside this big, big um, glasses and how they're extracting mm -hmm. um, rose water and so forth. And mm -hmm. it's, it's just uh, enormously beautiful. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Thank you uh -huh. for that. Yes. Uh, awesome. So we are next. Next project is going to be about the smell of and then aesthetic uh, I, connotation I like of. I like to write things about places you can't go and come back easily, things that you can't see, experiences you can't recover. I think as a historian, it's a, it's a kind of way of, of talking about the invisible things that shape our lives. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Amazing. The book concludes with um, with a very strong, I, I would say, very strong statement. Can you please tell us what is the final statements? The book, the, the first chapter of the book presents American reactions that involve the Huri after September 11th. And it's particularly a focuses on a question uh, about a theory we didn't discuss that that proposes that Huris are not these feminine companions, but they're white raisins. And it's that part of the chapter or that chapter is really about a critique of Islam that it doesn't have a tradition of scriptural interpretation. And then I take the reader through the different levels of the book to show that this question of the Huri is not just even a question about Islam, it's a question that is within the tradition of European writing and American writing. So we even have something we didn't talk about in the 19th century, gentlemen writing love poetries to their love poetry to their, you know, American sweethearts referring to them as Huris. So it's within America as well. But the end of the book, I asked the question, what I call the woman's question, which is something that I saw that was very developed in the kind of digital sphere. And that is, if men receive huris, what do women receive? And in the chapter, I give a range of answers for how Muslims in the 20th, but really 21st century answer that question and, and show that there is a, a vast range, including quite surprisingly, some who argue for male huris. And how I end the book is at this point of saying that all along we've been asking the wrong question or that the media has been asking the wrong question. It's not what are Huris and are Huris grapes or raisins. It's what do women receive? How do women understand their role within this larger tradition? And what are the different ideas about that? And in that sense, um, the book ends on a very strong note of saying that there is a scriptural interpretation. It is very dynamic. It is very imaginative, but you have to be looking in the right place to be able to see it. If we keep on falling back on our old polemics that we've inherited from Latin Christendom that denigrate other religions and different systems, we're not going to see where the real answers are. 
Beautiful, very beautiful. One question that I love to ask Nerina, I wonder what did you leave out and did not include in the book and why? Well, the, the one, one area that got left out, which you referred to already, was the male, these male servers, the Wilden of Fiman. They are very important um, for the tradition. Um, and I'd reference, you know, I'd mentioned this earlier, they, they're a laboring class in paradise. They're not, there's, a, there's enough material that talks about them as, as created beings for paradise. And so it's important to, to understand the different stratifications, that there are stratifications in paradise. So that's one area that I didn't fully develop because um, that's not what this project was about. But I think it's a very impro important project and someone should do it. Um, the other area that I wouldn't say that I left out, it's just that I went as far as I could go, was um, in the fourth chapter, I looked at the fifth chapter, I looked at some of the traditions of the Huri in in jihadi text and specifically in different websites and recruitment videos. And many, many of those videos and that material is not accessible since YouTube has changed their policies over the last few years. But um, they were still up when I was doing the research. And so I would watch them over and over and over and over again, trying to locate the Huri, the context, the meaning of it, how it was being used. Um, and you can read about that the argument in the book, but there was a certain point that there, there were so many dynamic aspects on the, the websites um, that could have been followed, but uh, I, I had had enough of the violence, the, the use and um, the, the aim of violence, and then I wanted to move on to other things. So that also is another area um, for research, but I think we do have some really significant people who've worked on that as well. Please stay put with me. It's the tradition in our show to ask our guests to share something meaningful about peace, about kindness and compassion, particularly important because although we are coming out of pandemic, inshallah, and things are going back to normal, I believe that what we've learned throughout the pandemic is to be, to be kind because life is so short and we should not give space to hatred or violence or any of that nature as much as we live we really need i mean we should we should be kind and we should be compassionate and and seek for peace for that uh, we ask our guests to share something meaningful about peace about kindness and compassion and that includes our dear guest narina thank you thank you so Sarah, when you first told me about this, I thought, oh, I, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I'm so much more comfortable talking about texts in the past. Uh, but, but I did have an idea. And what I wanted to share is that one of the joys of doing scholarship and research is not just the ideas and the kind of space to, to, to think about things, um, but to also to get to a point where you discover what your argument is and what you want to say. And when you get to that point, you realize someone is there waiting for you. And it may not be someone who lives in your time period, but it's someone who's there who understands and has the same kind of vision, a similar kind of argument. Um, I, I take this in my mind, a kind of metaphor, like you're climbing this mountain and you get to the very peak. And instead of feeling heroic and victorious and kind of egocentric, you realize that you had a companion all along that you didn't realize. Um, who was waiting there. And so 
um, I, I, I had this experience in the garden and the fire after I finished that book. And I thought, oh, I know what this book is about. I realized there was one article that, that did such a wonderful job um, and that there was an alignment between what I was trying to say in this article. And so what I'd like to do is to share not just my thoughts, but the one person who I think was able to achieve that as well. And it's, it's something that comes up in the sixth chapter um, by Fatima Mernesi. This is the text I referred to right in the beginning of our conversation, a uh, woman in this Muslim paradise. And it's a book where she, it's very slim, a very slim, powerful book where she has a kind of devastating critique about the Huri. She argues that the Huri indicates a kind of misogyny in Islam um, and that, um, in fact, it's not just women who lose out in this model um, because the model is something that earthly women cannot attain. Um, they don't have the same constitution or configuration as the Huri, but it's also a model where men lose out um, because they're kind of trapped in their own types of roles of the fascination um, with this feminine being. And as she goes through the book, um, aside from the critique, which you may agree with or you may not, I think what's so beautiful about it is she suggests that what women should be doing is starting associations, the International Association of Women Interested in Designing Alternative Paradises. And there's something really joyful that she talks about that the kind of need for women to interpret text, the need for women to think about and to imagine the world that they want to be part of, that they want to design, and that there should be this kind of large scale project. In that, she has a passage where she shares her imagination of what paradise is. Um, and she talks a little bit about this kind of imam's paradise, which she equates with power and um, having scores and having accounts and gendered relations that are not necessarily smooth or fair or equal. But here's where I want to focus in is these words. I see paradise as a deep, deep breath taken in a wide, wide horizon of peace. Paradise is when I wear the sun around my head like a necklace. Paradise is when others can sense that I'm connected with stars, with moons, familiar and unfamiliar, with skies, the blue ones and the other ones. And I love that phrase, the skies, the blue ones and the other ones, because we don't acknowledge all of those skies. We don't share all of those imaginings. And I think that's what's so beautiful about her words and her call to action. It's not a call to action just for justice. It's a call to action for humanity, for us to imagine together what our, our perfected realms would be. What would it mean to value ourselves for who we are? And that if we do it together, we might be able to reshape the world. You reshape the world and reshape the paradise that we we want to be included. The beauty of the Huri, Heavenly Virgins, Feminine Ideals, is the book that we should read and enjoy. I really enjoyed our, our conversation. Thank you very much, Nerina. Khoda Hafiz. Okay.